welcome to this week's episode of Frivolous Gravitas. Uh, today we'll be following Chris around on our little uh, discussion adventure to the land of uh, personal digital security. So this isn't, we're not going to be really getting into too much about, you know, conceptual privacy. Rather, we're going to be more getting into the practical aspects of um, your personal data security, you know, on your phone, on your, um, on your line, on your, uh, in your computer, laptop, whatever you use, uh, because this stuff's important. Your data is yours. You need to keep it secure from, you know, hackers, essentially, you know, digital bandits and also those who would use it in ways that you didn't vote for. Uh, so without further ado, let's move it over to Chris and see where where would we start if we're looking to maintain our own um, digital privacy? Thank you very much. Hello and welcome. I'm uh, graciously here to speak on some some topics close to my heart, just for uh, mostly in the in the perspective of like journalists or dissidents or or just individuals who are in countries that are um, that are submitted to oppressive regimes. I, I don't really want to name them all out because we might have some fans in some of them, but uh, China's surveillance state being one of the obvious ones. And um, Hong Kong supporters are routinely being rounded up by government officials based on the things that they say on the internet and things like that. So privacy to me is also a security matter. And for most people in the world who aren't as lucky as us to live in a rich country that's also freely open and democratic, it's an essential feature to them even being able to better their own societies, to be able to speak publicly. Yeah, so it's kind of like this is something that you have in your house, like a fire extinguisher. Because like the, 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 the fire, um, the firefighters are uh, further away than the fire would, uh, the fire is not going to wait for you to... Uh, the firefighters to get there. So you might as well have a fire extinguisher to put it out right there. And yeah. it's the same thing. You're not going to be like, oh, they hacked my computer. Well, you could prevent it by doing it. Now, if you live in a regime where um, now if your country's spying on you, I don't really have much sensitivity uh, with regard to what I'm going to think about your country. I'm sure the people there are nice, the government on the other hand. <laughs> but um, the it seems like that kind of thing that you would need to maintain um, your own personal sovereignty uh, in, uh, in over your own life. So yeah, and it, it's pretty critical that we we also distinguish. Like there, there's personal privacy in the sense of like things that you do in your home or like the passwords you have for your your banking information or whatever, and that's really important. Don't get me wrong, but oh, my glasses just broke. Oh wow. Uh, be in the blooper reel. That happens all the time. <laughs> the screws are... Anyway. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, so there's personal privacy and security about, like, you know, what you do in your bedroom with your with your partners or your kids or how you raise your families or whatever. But what I want to talk about is um, the the practical tools and implements that you, that you can exercise to help protect yourself as well as change the system that's overruling you. So, for example, uh, if you want a population to who's under an authoritarian regime to overthrow their authoritarian regime, they need to be able to speak to each other and coordinate and have the education to know what a better system would look like and how to set that up. 
And that's really hard to do when, when you've got a government already controlling or dominating the information circuitry. So the system of communication itself is at risk. And the only way that you can protect yourself while trying to buck against that system is to first be secure and private in your discussions publicly, if that makes sense. So an example of this would be like a message board. If you are in a country like China, where you're not allowed to speak about certain things like Tiananmen Square, or uh, you'll get a, uh, they've got like government surveillance systems where they actually attach personality and character scores to all of their citizens. Yeah, the social and, credit system, which yeah. relies on um, this surveillance infrastructure, like kind of getting its claws into everyone's life. Yeah, and it's super important. Like, it sounds superficial, but like, it dictates how long you wait in an emergency room when you're sick or injured. It mm. dictates how, what interest rates you get on a loan for your business or whether or not your business gets support from the government, whereas your, your competitors might get support just for speaking more openly about how great the Communist Party is. Right. As they if might political get economic advantages. As if political wheel is the most important aspect of a person's life. Like you can't boil someone's effectiveness in society or value to society down to one metric. And I think that's one of the things that I don't like about that, because, you know, are you are you like a hard worker? Are you a good person? Are you a good friend? Are you a good husband, wife, like whatever? Oh, no, no. What only matters is what do you say about our party? It's like, well. And, yeah. Uh, and, the, and the thing is, the only way to change it, though, is to be able to speak about um, about these issues candidly. And that's what's that's what's being infringed upon mm -hmm. when when. Uh, when you're not able to. So that's why they do it too, is because the government's trying to maintain their control and power. They don't want to relinquish it to the public, right? So I wanted to talk about some tools that are available and some of the pitfalls that are out there and also some of the um, the misconceptions that are like can cause gr gravest con consequences if ignored. So the first I want to talk about is uh, you'd mentioned in a prior previous episodes to the tour. Um, so I'm going to just explain quickly what it is for those who don't know. It's uh, it's an uh, acronym for the Onion Router. And what it is is like a browser, like Google Chrome or Microsoft Edge. It just displays websites and things. But in the back end, behind the scenes, um, it relays uh, encrypted packets between other Tor users. So people all over the world set up like a single computer or a server or something and they donate some resources to Tor. Resources is just another way of saying like compute power or um, processing or storage space on their on their server, or, uh, memory access, things like that. So uh, in having a network of a whole bunch of Tor nodes where it's just like a cloud of random computers all connected to the same network, it splits up any information that you're sending and receiving to a specific website through a randomized number of these uh, relays, they call them. So it bounces from one person's node. They can't see what's in or out because it's encrypted. Then it bounces to another node. That node can't see what's in or, in or out because it's encrypted, bounces to another node, and then it pulls from a Tor server. So the important thing to know about Tor is that it's not impervious to a man-in-the-middle attack in the sense that like, if there was a hacker sitting there waiting to see what data comes out of your computer and what data comes into your computer, like if they're right at the front end of your node and they've already got access to your router from that point, 
you're still vulnerable even if you're using Tor. And a lot of people have that sense of security when using the Tor browser specifically because it looks more secure and because you know you're going through the relays. But the fact that those relays are bypassed by an observer who's cut uh, the first line of defense between you and the first node, um, it can lead to even more hazard. Because if you were on, say, Microsoft Edge or uh, Chromium browser, you'd know you were being tracked and you'd probably dial down your uh, your inflammatory incendiary remarks based on the fact that you're on a browser that's not <coughs> as Tor. But when you have that false sense of security, ignoring the, the potential that there's somebody watching be, uh, between your computer and the first node, you might be more willing to supply information that is more um, detrimental to your, your safety or security. Right. The rule number one is just using Tor or just using any one type of security is never enough. Because mm -hmm. there are more than one ways, a vector of attacks. Uh, well, one thing I liked about Tor, and it's actually, it, Tor is a bit difficult to get used to. Uh, because it's, one thing that happens is when you're using something like Tor, you get used to Google reading your mind. And that's actually something that you need to give up. Um, because Tor doesn't really let you Google remember that stuff very well. And... Um, well, you should stop using Google if you're interested in this stuff anyways, uh, which we'll probably get to. But um, it actually will um, change the resolution of the browser projection within the browser window uh, as, you know, they can track. If there's one value that's consistent on your computer, um, they can narrow down that that's your computer so even if it's at you know you have a resolution <clears throat> that's going to a site uh, and they can see that a computer with this resolution you know rendering the window in this size um, is constant continuously going to this site then they can say okay that's probably him let's target that and go for it and then they can you know see your screen while you're using it and so there is a bit of a border around the window so don't be alarmed by that. But um, the whole point is to make your access to uh, whatever you're seeing seem like either um, a random user or every other user out there. Um, so it's um, you do have to take it seriously. It's not going to be like uh, give and go, um, but it does you know, block a lot of stuff from going through. Um, I think that what I was describing was called, uh, what we, we would call like fingerprinting. So the fingerprint of your internet use, you have certain bookmarks, you have certain, uh, screen resolution, you have certain, you know, settings all through your thing that pretty much show that it's you using it and, and Tor kind of makes even on that level more anonymous. Um, yeah, and, it, and again, it's not that the fingerprints go away, <clears throat> but the nodes that are accessing the final server that's drawing the page that you're trying to look at, yeah, that node is going to be somewhere in like the Netherlands or Turkey or, or India or something. And you have no idea because they're randomized, right? Right. And, so, and every well, time you connect, you're going to get different sets of nodes, so they can't keep tracking you. So if everything was consistent, you can always crack it because you could eventually figure it out just from yeah. amassing enough data. But every time you close the Tor browser, it deletes browser it deletes your cookies it deletes your the tracking data that's collected if any um all those little 
rabbit turds that fall behind your your internet traffic as you browse the web. So um, I, I'm probably going to take you in a direction that you. I'm not done with Tor though. There's still okay, good. So the, the onion just... sites. The yeah. other thing about Tor is they have hidden Tor services, and those are websites that you can't access on what they call the clear net. So the colloquial expression for it is the dark net or the deep web, or and this dark, is where you dark, hear about dark. those um, dark net marketplaces where people buy like uh, hitman squads and um, pornography or you know anything that might be illegal in their country. They they could buy it online through Tor using hidden services. And these website addresses usually end in .onion. And the only way to see these types of sites is to have a link and find it through the clearnet or have somebody directly sends it to you. But these these servers are specifically hidden and only available to Tor browsers. Mm -hmm. So, So, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that that's the the important factor in that is that the... um, because servers are subject to government regulation too. So if you had to post information or have a message board that was anti-government in a country that has an authoritarian regime, they wouldn't be able to find the server in order to shut down the server as they would on a normal uh, clearnet website, like a yeah. .com that we're used well, to. We have this problem in um, archives too where you can't really afford service space because the government doesn't, you know, you have a government archive, but then they're saying, all right, here's three pennies run off, you know, host 33 petabytes of data. And you're like, ah, we can't do that. So they go to Amazon web services and you're like, these, this is our, or like, you know, iron mountain or something like that. And you kind of like, um, uh, you're, you're leaving it up to a third party that you don't know what they're really doing and you don't have access to their encryption and all that of your own data. And it's kind of, um, there's some, there's a lot of trust going on there with regard to, um, our digital heritage. Um, see episode like two or something of our stuff. We do talk a bit about that. <clears throat> now, I think the first three episodes are pretty apropos. <laughs> yeah. Data, uh, trust, and, uh, history. Yeah. Archive. So, um, good times. Uh, <laughs> now within Tor, um, are you, are you, you said your piece on Tor? Yes. Sorry. Okay. So <clears throat> I kind of want to take this, uh, conceptually. So you're in Tor, you got a browser on your computer that does a bit of work to keep your privacy. Uh, whether you are someone who doesn't want someone to track the fact that you're looking up the library books that the government may not think is too cool, even though you're just writing a paper for university, uh, or you're in China and you want to, you know, exercise your ability to think for yourself, uh, God forbid. And you, this is a good start, but it's not. So one of the things I, would like to get into is search engine and this has been coming up a lot lately uh where you see um google who's pretty much just reading your mind when you type in so like you have to use the internet so what do you use um to navigate the internet so a lot of people will just go to google and that's becoming more and more um not hazardous but oh it's definitely hazardous yeah (laughs) Where you get everything that you're doing looking at logged and you don't know how much it's being logged. So you can go, you can, one of the things you can do is, um, you can go to a more, uh, a less invasive, uh, 
one, something like DuckDuckGo would be a better alternative where they don't, where they intentionally don't save your stuff and they intentionally don't send it and they do active blocking um, of certain trackers, especially of their competition, uh, Google. So, But what's important to keep in mind is these are businesses, right? Mm-hmm. So whether it's Google or Bing or anything like that, they're, it's not just like some conspiracy tinfoil hat thing they're watching no. you. It's like literally the <coughs> way they make money is by selling your tracking data. Mm-hmm. That is the only way Google makes so much money they can send satellites up up and take pictures of the entire world on cars that drive through every city for their Google Maps. Like They make so much money, and it's not just because they have a search engine. It's because of the data they collect through the search engine. So anytime a search engine tells you that it's secure, you can't trust it. I mean, you can try to use ones that are more secure, like DuckDuckGo, but I've never looked at the code. I don't know. And I know there's groups of people in the open source community who have been looking towards making algorithms that are impartial, but those are run by groups of people who self-organize and they also have personal interests, right? So there's only so much you can trust what people say to you. If Google one day said, hey, we're going to stop tracking you with cookies and we're going to start using this new ad platform they call Flock, uh, federated learning of cohorts where they take people and put yeah. them into baskets of uh, of interest and they readjust those interests every period. I don't know if the period's two weeks or one week or whatever. But the intention of it is to, to sort of deserialize people's tracking data and just put them into buckets and sell those buckets of people to advertisers oh. under the auspices that it's going to be more secure for the, the individuals. Meanwhile, it's just a tranche of people that they're trading yeah but for all you know they're trying to do an altruistic thing like a good for the for mankind and have like mm-hmm. the best search engine that doesn't track people but still makes them enough money to keep it going it's possible i doubt it but it's possible see one of the things that's come up recently and this is um gone through really well in <clears throat> um douglas murray's book where if you type in um it's not only that it's tracking you it's that you are being shown um, when you're not anonymous and like Google's figured out who you are and stuff like that. Um, they show you what they think you want to see. And that ends up being modified by whatever politics is in the news that day. And so, a lot of times, um, one of the examples was if you are in Canada, the United States, or the UK, and you type in, you know, the, you type in, you know, white family, and you'll get a bunch of pictures of black families or something or interracial families for some reason. But then you go do the same search in Saudi Arabia, and you'll get exactly what you're looking for. Um, or you'll, if you type in like racially motivated stuff, you'll get, you know, pictures of um, sad white men and you type in black man, you'll get a bunch of pictures of happy black men. It's like, wait a second, what the heck is going on? So you're being shown. Um, and it's very dependent on where you are in the world because, you know, that region's politics, uh, that region's Google politics essentially, uh, are motivated, uh, to show you something that it thinks that you should be seeing, not what you want to be seeing or not what you're intending to see. And this is a problem. Um, it's, I don't know if it's a privacy problem, but it's kind of the tale of that uh, because you are 
um, it's not so much that you're it's like trying to go see stuff that you shouldn't be seeing or that it's you're going to um, be doing devious things online. It's like, no, it's trying to regulate your behavior uh, before you even get online. And, and worse than bit, that, it's conditioning, right? Well, that's like exactly that, what it is. The way we learn is through repetitions and patterns. And if somebody else develops a pattern that they continuously show you, you can see this with like party politics in the States. People can't even fathom more than two parties in the States just because they were born on a two-party system. They are so conditioned to think independents can't win. They just don't vote independents and they vote for one of two corrupt parties, which is insane. If you're talking about the country that murders people in the name of freedom, they can't even fathom more than two parties. And everywhere else in the world has like five, six, seven parties in some places. Like, like it's actually insane that they believe this. But it's not because that's the way our brains work is through patterns and conditioning. So mm. when you use the same search engine over and over again, there are uh, several major major faults to it. First is, as you say, it's going to be showing you the responses it wants to show you. Second, it's going to show you responses that you want to see because it wants to encourage you to keep using it. And the third problem with it is it's keeping track of everything that you type for the sake of being better itself. Like it has to. The only way it can improve itself is, is if it collects data. And all it takes is one employee in that company, even if they're perfectly altruistic and protecting everybody's identities and security for ads and whatever. Just the training algorithms they use to train the search engine has data in it that a single employee out of 20,000 could one day just pick up, put on a USB stick and walk over somewhere else and cash out 20 million in Bitcoin for it, right? So, like, the actual security risk and the privacy issue isn't about, like, hiding nefarious deeds. It's about protecting yourself from people who are trying to violate your basic fundamental human rights as we see them as inalienable through Kant or Locke's uh, yeah. conjectures. Well, this is kind of where the – this is kind of the fundamental um, place of it. And I, I, I thought I might get to this later, but I think it's good to highlight it now is that when <clears> – <throat> when you um that that whole well if you have nothing to hide then why would you um why would you not let us like if you, if you're if you're if if you're trying to hide this then that means you have something to hide and that means you're guilty um but that's really not how it works it's like well you know if there's nothing to hide then you'll let me into your house and look around and you know look under your doilies and stuff and it's like yeah or no. stand there and watch you poop like everybody yeah. poops I know you it's poop, like, why can't I watch you? Like, yeah. it's weird and gross. <laughs> so, it's just like, yes. But the thing is, is that if someone runs, it doesn't necessarily mean they're guilty. It means they're afraid of getting, like, arrested or something. Yeah. Like, nobody wants to get arrested. Um, and so, you know, cops come up to them and go, hey, what are you doing? And they're like, ah, you know, because you surprise them. And because they're surprised, they look over, they see cops, and then they're, you know, their heart's already racing. So, they're like run and then the cops are like well he must be doing something he wouldn't run if he wasn't guilty well that's not necessarily true and okay. even if it was true you need a warrant <laughs> but even and, then if you get a no-knock warrant they're causing yeah. gunfights all over the states by police with no-knock warrants just breaking into people's houses in the middle of the night with guns and screaming the first reaction that a gun-toting american's gonna have is i'm gonna i have this gun to defend myself from a break-in Mm -hmm. What are you going to do when somebody breaks into your house and starts screaming and pointing guns at you? You're going right. to shoot back before you say, are you really a cop? Let me see your badge number and ID. Like, 
A yeah. no-knock warrant causes more police violence because of the situation it instigates. And that's yeah. exactly the same well, thing with this. That's even beyond the just the fact that it's conceptually so it's cancer. But um let's <laughs> but when it comes to digital stuff, um most like yes, we all type in like, you know, <laughs> TNT into, you know, Google and then Google's like, oh, this guy might be a terrorist. It's like, no, maybe he's a chemist. <laughs> mm. Or like I've like I study history. Some of the stuff I've typed into my search engine would definitely like I'm definitely on a couple lists. Like I did I did a couple papers on like nuclear weapons. I did um I did one paper on raising children. So well, just for I'd this probably show probably have three children. Up, <laughs> had to look up drugs, extremism, yeah. radicalism, religion, like all of this stuff just just to do this podcast. The fact that I just typed in Tor into my search engine <laughs> puts me on a list. So it's like, well, yeah. why are you even looking that up? It's like cause I'm allowed to imbibe information. It's like I don't have any and the fact is is that and this is the same with a lot of debates, which I don't want to get into because that could just bog us down is that you have you know you have soccer moms going and saying like well well they're they must be doing something nefarious i wouldn't do that blah 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 and they're like won't somebody please think of the children but meanwhile it's just like not there you're seeing phantoms behind every tree i, I i'm sorry i missed the idiom but in my head but the fact is is that with that ambiguity, you can create boogeymen and terrorists and drug lords. And that's why we have things like the war on drugs and the war on terrorism and stuff like that. Because we are assuming things are, we're looking for perceived threats and ignoring the actual threats. There are actual threats out there. There are. Just because you live in peaceful Canada doesn't mean someone's, you know, not plotting and scheming. But the guy next door looking up like, Hmm. I didn't know there was nitroglycerin in, in in pills. That's neat. Oh, it's an agent that does this. It's like, well, why is he looking up nitroglycerin? Maybe he wants to explode something. No, he's not. <laughs> so I, I think that's a common misconception too. Uh, to be honest, the oversimplification of what these algorithms are actually doing—they're mm -hmm. not looking at one individual search and then tracking somebody based on that. Right. They're looking at aggregated up? data, and that's why. <laughs> Um, even though we have HTTPS, like which is a secure sockets layer type of encryption on all of your traffic on the web now, as a standard, we have HTTPS, that S at the end of it um, is the secured version now. Mm -hmm. It's not that um, they're looking at one thing that you type in or one thing you look up or like nuclear power or anything like that. Oh, yeah. The problem and risk with metadata is that it identifies you because of the volume of it, how much things you type in with the same connection, with the same computer, with the same mm. browser, with the same words, same typos, same language. That type of stuff is what's identifying. Um, Google doesn't care who you are as a person. They don't care what you think about, what you like, who you want to kill. They don't care about any of that. The mm. only thing Google cares about is how can I mon uh, monetize you as a commodity. Your browsing is a commodity. It's a physical thing that they make money selling. So they really don't care if you're black, white, gay, uh, trans, or anything. Yeah, the just because they put up they a pride flag on the thing doesn't mean that they are pro-LGBT. They're pro-Google. <laughs> yeah. 
And but um, it's not just Google though. Like Microsoft does it too. That's oh, why yeah. all of these companies have data centers and that's their biggest business these days. If you check their balance sheets, we just went through earnings season. You can see that most of their money is being made from cloud computing. And cloud computing is what they're calling storing all of this metadata and aggregating it together into bundles and lumps to identify you as an, a commodity, a price tag on your, your search history and your relevance to another, um, another sender, uh, seller, a vendor. So those vendors will pay a premium to get direct marketing to people who are very highly likely to, um, to make purchases or to want to be aware of their services type of thing. So the important thing to note that it's not like it's not like all data capture is bad or all search engines are bad. And I'm not saying don't use cookies ever. Um, cookies are like the the little tracking nuggets that they leave on your browser so that you know images load up faster. They don't have to keep downloading them from mm-hmm. the original source. They just stay on your computer. So sites that you visit often just pop up really quick. You'll notice that. That's a benefit. For, for Google to finish the sentence for you, that's a benefit. For it to have an answer to a question you type in a Google search bar is really, really useful for quick searches, especially if you're like an author or a journalist or a data analyst or a professional, anything really. So the data itself is not the problem. The issue is we're, we're very negligent in the way we give out our data. Like walking on a cell phone through a city, even if you turn it off with your Wi-Fi on, the Wi-Fi is built to check to see what networks are available to it so it can tell you, hey, do you want to connect to this? It needs to do that just to function. But walking past a block with a whole bunch of shops with Wi-Fi on them, all of those Wi-Fi routers can pick up and say, hey, I don't know who this individual person is, but I've got a unique ID tag for that phone. And they know every time you've pinged their router, meaning they know every time you've walked by them. And if you've got a sequence of business businesses down a street, Every one of those shows you which direction you're walking because your ID will be the same based on all of them. And then you've got the frequency data. If you walk that way every day, each one of those businesses are going to ping you, ping you, ping you in a consistent manner every single day. So it's not that they're watching you, but they are. And the fact that that data needs to be collected just for those services and hardwares to function properly means that a government can manipulate and abuse that and turn it back around on their population. Mm-hmm. So having that data exist means that a government can su- supply a, a, an affidavit or a warrant or whatever. Yeah. Or like, and then or, they can misuse it afterwards. Or a corporation that has a bit too much power, um, Amazon, um, is can use that to its advantage. Like if you stop in front of one, it'll be like, oh, it stopped in front of that one. Send them ads right now. But... But the businesses only care about the ads. But what the right. governments can do with the ad generating data is much, much more harmful. Right. And that stuff's done behind the scenes. They don't necessarily have to tell the public. I mean, a lot of times you get the Freedom of Information Act and like a reporter notices it. They might do a feature on it and, you know, go down to the courthouse and draw it up. But like that's a time consuming, expensive and laborious process that yeah. obviously like every- we don't catch it all. Every time it does come to light, um, it's like, can you believe the government's doing this? And then, you know, this and that's happened. And you get someone like Snowden who's like, they're violating stuff with the um, the Patriot Act, blah, blah, blah. And the government's like, so what are you going to do about it? 
And then everyone's just like, oh, damn, he's right. (laughs) That's the thing. It's so complicated. Like, how do you even write a law to restrict the government's access to it? Mm -hmm. Like, do you start telling them which scripts they can run and encode? And do you have like a coalition of, I don't know. Start by repealing the Patriot Act. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's about torture, in my opinion, mostly, but. Um, but um, the but the, the intention behind it though is not harmful. So they're not the, these companies aren't acquiring and accumulating data just for the sake of hurting people. They're doing it because it makes them money, and they mm. really don't care about you. But the government does care, and they have access to those servers, and they rule the companies under their jurisdiction. So wherever those servers are located, even if Google's stationed or headquartered in the states, if they've got a uh uh. A server in Serbia, and that server holds web pages that people in Serbia pull because that's how you get quick access to repeatedly visited websites. That server is going to have all that data on it just for quick access for its users. And that's what makes the internet as fast as it is today is because we optimize like that. Mm-hmm. So um, important to that, I want to get back to the Tor thing by talking about VPNs. Right. So when we talked about Tor, you can set as many relays as you want, but I think the, the default is just three. And that's enough for most people to stay anonymous. But again, you don't have to do it for every type of thing that you search, just the things that are, are uh, risky to you, uh, depending on your profession or your area. So journalism, for instance, is a huge one. If you fly off to Syria to report on the war, you don't really want the Assad government knowing exactly what you're, where you're walking, who you're talking to, and all that. And just flipping off the dial on your Wi-Fi on your phone doesn't actually turn off the hardware. So there are ways around all of this, especially with Bluetooth. So as mm. soon as you put Bluetooth into all of these devices, you can turn it off all you like, but you can still ping it a Bluetooth. Well, and that's one of the things that Snowden does talk about in his book is that you don't know like you turn your comp- you turn your um you turn your computer off and one thing you can do with your computer is like disconnect all the power but your phone is a different matter cuz it's it's pretty much battery operated unless it's dead 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 then there's no reason to believe that turning off the your phone is actually turning off all the processes on your phone um and, and it's certainly not. If you turn off your phone and leave it for a week, the battery will degrade, not just from like quantum mechanics. It'll, it, it's running itself. It's clock keeps running while it's still un- moving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, but, yeah, but one of the problems is like, so with a tour relay, you have several people between your end point and your start point, right? But mm-hmm. then there's always the, the option, like the possibility of um, a malicious attacker being in between you and the front node. So, um, kind of like a toll booth. Yeah. So using a VPN is like having a dedicated node that you choose to use between you and that first node. So it's like an added layer of security. You'll often hear that that's what they mean by a layer. Cause it's like you use Tor to have a whole bunch of relays and then you can use a VPN. That's a dedicated relay. But a lot of people are using their VPNs based on the advertising of the VPN service. And I'll read a couple for you. They'll say, um, or I'll just read one because it's obvious, but be sure to leave no tracks online. No logs policy means our service is totally private. That may well be true, but if your destination starts recording your, your data, they're tracking the VPN server. And if you keep connecting through the same VPN server, you've got that metadata fingerprint again. You're not 
preventing anything by being constantly connected to the same VPN server. Because every time it pings when you walk through that same street with all of those, uh, those Wi-Fi signals, um, it's also going to see an attempt at logging through a VPN every time you connect to one of them. So that coffee shop you keep going to, yes, use a VPN if you're going to be going on doing banking or anything, but it's not keeping you private if you keep using the same VPN because you're just giving it a different fingerprint. And again, these companies aren't looking at you as a person, what you look like and the things you say and what you, all they look at is a jumble of numbers that identifies you. So whether that jumble of numbers is a server in Sweden or a server in Madagascar is completely irrelevant to an algorithm that just aggregates data. So it's important to know that these layers of security aren't just gratuitous going over the top. And again, it's not tinfoil hat wearing. If you're a reporter or a news agent uh, and you're reporting on, on a government or a war or uh, drug crimes or like Vox even or Vice does these specials where they go into like Colombia and stuff like that, like really dangerous territory, you definitely constantly want to use every available means of security, even just for end-to-end -end encryption for uh, like text messages and things like that. But these text apps are just the same as all these other companies. You got like WhatsApp and Signal and they're all susceptible to one employee just selling the data or they'll tell you it's encrypted and it's not and you have no way of verifying it because their code is proprietary. They can't just give away their software because that's how they make money is by people using it. Well, it's anyone can buy this stuff and like there's probably regulations saying, oh, you can't sell to this and this, but that doesn't mean you sell the data to one person and they'll be like, okay, um, any guerrilla regimes want this data? Cause like you can, once it's sold to a second party, it can be sold to a third party, um, who could use it. And if you're yeah. being targeted by someone for saying something like Taiwan's a country, um, then you, um, like, and then they know you're there and they can be waiting for you. It, it's complicated, but it's, um, if they really, now most of us, which means 99.9% .9 of us don't have regimes or guerrilla fighters looking to get us. Most of us are going to be just using this stuff to, you know, use the, you know, European, uh, Netflix or something, uh, which is kind of technically illegal in itself, but, Eh. So, um, you know, that's a privilege you can get using a VPN. But at the other side, um, you do want to protect if you do have some, like if you are putting yourself in a position, uh, where you might come to harm and there is a lot of good reasons to do so, then this is definitely a measure you want to be taking, but you don't want to be lazy about it. Like Chris is saying, you, I think one of the things that would help just generally is to make your online habits a bit more unpredictable. Um, or just maybe be deliberate in them. Like yeah. When you're looking up a cooking recipe, who cares if they follow you, right? And then you want better cooking recipes that match the cooking recipes you look up. You want that data tracked, kind of. Well, I do. Because it just makes cooking easier. Plus your NSA guy watching, uh, watching your every move online will now have that cooking recipe too. And you're creating a greater bond with your... Yeah, um, you're, you're creating like a connection handlers. with your supervisors. Yeah. <laughs> so, but one thing the I... Important, sorry, the important thing I was linking to between yeah. the Tor and the VPN and all that, the irony of it, like mm -hmm. the delicious humor, humor humorous yeah. irony of it, is using Tor and a VPN and hidden services on, on the Tor browser, you can access a darknet marketplace and you can buy like chunks of that data 
if you want it personally to abuse and um, and to like infringe on and violate other people, it's openly available on even the same platform that helps prevent it. Google so violate Tor your own itself, rights. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and they're notoriously susceptible to man in the middle or phishing attacks, where they they build a website that looks the same as the other, but because Tor um, addresses with that dot onion, the hidden service tours, those, those addresses are really, really hard. Like you can't memorize them. They're just jumbles of words and letters that are just like, they look like an encryption. That's how they, they, they stay hidden because you can't really search up words that link to the, the address. You have to find the address from like somebody else posting it somewhere else that's encrypted with PGP, which is another thing we'll get into. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, the, the funny thing is you can buy other people's like credit card information. You can buy their addresses, their balances, their, um, you can get all kinds of illegal stuff through the Tor networks, hidden service marketplaces. And to do that, they use cryptocurrency, which takes me to the next section of our, our privacy segment. Yeah. So one of the things though is that, um, just a question on that kind of thing though, before we mm -hmm. get into cryptocurrency, if, one of the things that kind of makes me sleep better at night with regard to this, because it, this is all like you have a phone and we were talking about this and I do want to move on, but I do want to kind of make this point is that, you know, you have your phone. Now everyone can see my phone. It looks like a phone. Now the uncertainty that we have here, an unknown known or a known unknown, sorry. And that in a lot of, in every field, humans tend to, when they encounter a known unknown, they put, demons in there like what could it be done what could it be done and that's where that's like perfect breeding ground for um you know conspiracy theories and it's easy to you know like you said put the tinfoil hat on but there is stuff going on in there we're not just making this up but at the same time it's probably easier to just find me in person and follow me home to get my address or you could just ask me in a, you know, non, in just like, oh yeah, just put your address here and here and here. And it's like, haha, we got this thing. You know, my paper records are out there. Um, so a lot of your vital statistics are easier to get than just, you know, gotta hack his computer to find out where he is. It's like, no, um, they're, they're like, they're, there's, there's, there's published phone books. And if, if a hacker is willing to write a program to get into your computer and, you know, risk all that, why not just read through the phone book until they find your, your name and say, mm -hmm, phone number, and they cross-reference a bunch of stuff and they know exactly where everything is. And then they realize that they don't care because your address doesn't really do anything. <laughs> so, Well, it does um, a lot though because it if does. you open a fraud bank account and do identity theft and mm -hmm. all that or if so, you set up a shell company and, and run money or launder money through somebody else's name yeah. not tied to you. So you need physical for that type of stuff, and that's verified through credit card information's billing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like keep your stuff. But the thing is, like you said, addresses anyone can get them. I can walk down the street and every single person that lives on my street has an address that I know. So like addresses aren't hidden. Phone numbers aren't hidden. And using an address and a phone number and a name is usually sufficient to find like Facebook account details. Then you've got like friends and affiliations, yeah. past employers, past schools. But all this data, nobody cares about one person. Mm -hmm. A hacker isn't looking at you and being like, you're the only target. You're the only person I'm targeting right now. That's not how they work. They set up a bot network of a whole bunch of scripts running on a whole bunch of other computers. 
and they just attack everybody from a list of data that they collect from one of these darknet sites or from an unscrupulous employee who decides to sell it for cash to feed their heroin addiction, like whatever the situation is, whether it's a government or not, it's not you that they're after, but your data is included in all of everybody else's data that they are after. And they just need one in a million. That's why you get these emails with like the Nigerian prince offering bars of gold. You just need some money or a place to store it. All you do is pay the transaction fee. I'll give you a million dollars. Poor guy. Like that You think to yourself, like that can't possibly work. But 25 years later, the internet still has the exact same email scams and slightly better ones. But the reason why is because only one in a million has to work. They email it out to 50 million people and five people do it. Like... Well, that's like one in 10 million. But like if five people commit to it, that's five grand they made for pressing enter. Yeah. It's so much money to do zero work. If I ever meet one of these guys, I'm not going to be held accountable for my actions. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, let's just that said. So bring us to, so we talked about browsers and we talked a bit about search engines. I just want to do a shout out to have I been pwned because there's a website where you can check where all the lists that are published from people who have, uh, but uh, the website is H A V E I B E E or sorry B E E N. Pwned is spelled with a P W N E D dot com. So have I been pwned dot com is just replaced the P with a O or oh, the O yeah. with a P. This is gonna fuel some people's nightmares. So <laughs> we'll put that in the uh, in the description. So all all it matters though with that is that you just change your password. So (laughs) if they've got your password on any one of those things that comes up in that list, it's just, it doesn't mean they've actively hacked you. It just means it's part of a list that they've sold to somebody who might want to hack you or a government who might want to keep track of you. Yeah. Just change your passwords. Simple as that. Yeah. But Um, it's inevitable. It will happen. No matter what you do online, somebody's going to have an, uh, some form of your data somewhere, either as a cookie. Um, you, you can even track people based on the little icons that show up in the address bar for the website. Like if you go to chrisdriver.com, you'll see like a KD or something in the top left. So every site can can offer up this little 16 kilobyte PNG picture that you're allowed to put up there. Just knowing that picture and the metadata from that picture can tell you about your traffic. <laughs> and a lot of people don't consider it as a threat because it's just a tiny little icon meant to show you that you're on the, the right website. But anybody can take that picture. Like, it's not proof of anything. It's just, it's a helpful optical tool for you to see that the, the address is accurate, that you didn't miss well, it. One of the things, and I, I really want, I do want to move on to um, Bitcoin, but one of the things that's been... P- they, like this has been put to good use. There are things, and and one of the things that comes up initially is the Internet Archive, which scours the web, copies your website, and makes a copy of it and saves your website for posterity. You can go to Internet Archive and be like, could you please take that down? Please don't. I know you might be embarrassed or something, but Internet history is important and we need to save it. Um just because you feeling queasy about what you put up doesn't mean you aren't part of internet history. Don't. Um, but essentially what they're doing is they're going in, taking your data and posting it up, up, up. Now it's all for a good reason, history and, you know, maintaining a record of humanity, keeping the flame alive. But that's essentially what they've been doing. They've been doing this since 1996. 
where they send out a crawler just like Google does and it just copies everything that it can get its hands on and then posts it on the Wayback Machine. And this has actually been a very, um, very good tool for accountability and journalism because, you know, you like MSNBC posts some stuff or the Guardian puts up their daily BS and then, you know, they retract it saying, no, no, we would have never have said that. And you go to the Wayback Machine and it says, well, you know, right here is where it is. So that is a, um, that's a, that, that's an example of a benevolent, not a benevolent, but a good use of, uh, this data. And really important to that. That's a lot of how we figured out, um, like who was supporting the, the Bush attacks in, in Afghanistan and Iraq. Mm-hmm. Like when we went to war over false information, it was pushed by the media and they very quickly like edited and took down a bunch of things after the fact so that they would look less blameworthy. But thanks to the archives, we know the reason why people had such a, 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 a what do you call it? Supportive push towards war in Iraq and Afghanistan post 9-11 was because of media misinformation and the media did try to cover it up. Mm-hmm. Again, it's not some conspiracy theory. It's just a conspiracy. Yeah. Your <laughs> it's data not a theory can once be, it's proven. Well, and your data can be used to good purpose. And like, but the thing is that it's your data and you do need to make sure that you're the one putting it to good purpose. Um, which is kind of why we're having this. Um, and so, um, now. Like the census is a good example of that. Yeah. Data for a good purpose, like the, for the government to spend its money effectively and run like healthcare programs and education, pro- it needs to know the demographics of its country. Census yeah. is very useful information to a government. Yeah. If the, if the Canada still thought it only had 20 million people in it and they taxed it accordingly, we'd have a lot of problems. So they need to know how many, just simply how many people are in the country. Yeah. And (laughs) And how many are young, how many are old, how many are sick, how many are immigrants? Like all of that actually helps the government provide better service and better use of public resources. So not all data collection is bad, but just you want to be careful of just cognizant even, just conscious of where you're offering it. So how does... um because I do want to get into a couple other things and you brought this up though, because I do want to get into ad blockers and open source stuff mm-hmm. um, and um, just basic antivirus stuff. Uh, but how does Bitcoin fall into this? Bitcoin is super important, but not just Bitcoin, all blockchain technologies. So, yeah. So I was going to, I was also going to use the word cryptocurrency, but blockchain is the key technology behind this, right? Yeah, most of them, most of them. The useful ones. Yeah, the useful ones, not the mean ones. To break it down, (laughs) I don't want to oversimplify because it's really important, but I do want to simplify it. So in simplistic terms, I'm going to ignore fringe cases just because anybody who's using those fringe cases isn't watching the basics of how it works. Or watching us. For, For our purposes. Bitcoin isn't a physical thing. It's just a ledger. It's a public ledger of all accounts. So if you manage... Uh, if you imagine your bank account is a private ledger that only you and the bank can see, and when you allow somebody else or you authorize a debit to your account by swiping your card, your credit card, or by processing a payment or something, debit or uh, withdrawal from an ATM, those are private between you, the machine, or the, the vendor, and your banking system who's maintaining your ledger for you. And then they print your bank will print a receipt and show you how much money is in your account with them. With Bitcoin and blockchain, the ledger is public. The entire thing is public. Everybody can see everybody's account balances, everybody's transactions, and everywhere every Bitcoin goes is 
tracked right bound back to the beginning of time when it was created. <clears throat> so I'm going to skip transaction fees and mining because it's not necessarily um, crucial in, in this respect. But one thing I will say, blockchain only works when it's decentralized. If any one person gets control of the blockchain, they could change the ledger and reconfirm it and nobody else could do anything about it. And this is, I'm just hypothesizing here, but this is probably the reason for the GPU shortage is governments trying to maintain or trying to develop a mining pool that develops 51% control of the blockchain so that they can just steal other people's cryptos. And that's a $2 trillion market. So it may sound like peas and carrots, but like, $2 trillion, if you're mining control, can one day just wipe that entirely out and stick it in your own pocket. Um, that's a risk. That's a real risk to a currency that's decentralized, is that anybody could one day get control of it, so long as people are trying to bundle their compute power together to try and um, mine cryptos and process transactions. So that's a side plot. It's not a guaranteed fix to this, the problem that it's trying to solve. It is a really good and unique and novel solution, and it's neat that it works. Um, but it's not a store of value. It's not, it's not a bar of gold or silver. Its usefulness is, um, is in, it's in the transaction itself. So instead of paying a bank to send money to your family abroad or risking having your cash stolen in the mail, you can quickly buy a Bitcoin from somebody transfer it across the world and have them sell it in their own currency. And then you don't pay transaction fees, wire fees. You don't have like a 30 day delay um, because anti-money laundering policies in most of the Western world require that any transactions over $10,000 be like investigated and audited to make sure that it's not for like terrorism or drugs or um, murders or whatever. Cause well, those, all those, money, all those securities related to not securities as in, but like all the security related to, monetary transactions are there because you know if if you hand someone a gold coin like they have to prove it's a gold coin first or they have to make sure that you're not you know this is actually your money unless it's a bearer bond of some sort um in which case if you're holding it it's real it's your money um that's why they call it a bearer bond but um and the Money itself is issued to a country, but then the, the money itself is valued in relation to the trust that, you know, that group of that the money represents has in the market. It's complicated, but Bitcoin works differently because the security comes from the blockchain, right? And then there's only a, um, there's only a certain amount of, uh, Bitcoin in the world. So there's not, it's a very, it, 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 but it's because, controlled. The release of Bitcoins saying, yeah. is controlled, yeah. So unlike currencies that can just print away more yeah. currency into existence, Bitcoin can't because it's built on an algorithm, not politics. Right. And so you get the trend. There's no need to have a uh, you know transaction fee because it's just you giving money or sending money or having a trend or like buying something from someone. Uh Without a third party, like a government coming in and taking sales tax or a bank saying you were using our services. No, you're just giving something. It's like if I took these pliers and gave it to you, I don't have to give up a portion of these pliers to someone else. 
uh, just by handing them. And then, you know, I get the pliers back and they have to play a transaction fee of the pliers. And by the time, you know, I've handed you lent out the pliers six times, uh, I don't have pliers anymore <laughs> or I, they don't have grips or something. But to be clear, there are transaction fees, but that's what goes to the miners usually. And that's mm. based on how busy the network is. So if you want to transfer money fast, then mm. you have to pay a higher fee to entice miners to prioritize your transaction over others. Mm -hmm. And the transactions, again, they're, they're not like people's names and stuff. It's just a string of numbers and letters that are just garbledy goop. Yeah, but they're yours. But they're yours, yeah. <laughs> So if you have 10 Bitcoin, or we'll just say one or whatever, if you have a number of Bitcoin, you transfer it to someone else, 30 years from now, you will always be able to see that transfer. You'll be mm. able to see garbledygook address to garbledygook address. But if they send something back to you, or you start buying coffee at a local shop to the same Bitcoin address, it's exactly the same like we were talking about with the, the Tor browsers and the Wi-Fi signals. And that that's linking a specific ID, that one wallet address, to all of these other transactions, and that metadata can be aggregated and say, oh, that's his cell phone pinging at the same time as he's processing a Bitcoin through this VPN that goes through a Tor browser through this local coffee shop's public Wi-Fi. Yeah. And it's like, well, how could they possibly think of all that? They don't. The algorithm just does it. That's what algorithms do is they aggregate data and they, they sort things by relationships. Now, to no matter how complicated it looks to us, that's no different for a computer to do it through seven layers or doing it through one. Right. Now, to be fair, someone did have to put thought into constructing these algorithms. Like, how are people? Oh, they're using this now. Well, let's do that. And then they write an algorithm that they don't have to look at that or think about that anymore. And they can do that because... Um, That's what the Neural Nets episode was describing. Yeah. How they make those relationships. It's just matrix so, multiplications. So, if they invent a new way of having internet security some uh some geek in a lab in um langley or something uh or at the nsa center i can't remember what it, where it is i can't remember the name of the town maybe i got it right but uh oh, they okay and they have to sit around and be like what is this and then they have to add that to the algorithm and figure out ways to get around it and through it and take from it and <coughs> use it for their own interests but then you know that's it. So it's it's it really is a game of Red Queen, um, you know, from Alice in Wonderland. You know, uh, as fast as you run, you can only go. You can only end up catching up. You're always. But the way of... encryption works, like the encryption itself, is not variable like that. It's the implementations of the encryption that are finding flaws. Mm -hmm. So if you use a Diffie-Hellman key exchange algorithm, what you're doing is factoring large primes. And it's really easy to check if something is prime, but it's really hard to find out what the prime is if the number is 28 digits long or 256 digits long. So what we're doing with these SHA-256 AES encryption algorithms and TLS mm -hmm. and SSL, they're all versions of Diffie-Hellman key exchanges where you get private and public keys that can be exchanged so that a public key encrypts something, but only the private key holder can decrypt it. Mm -hmm. It's a one-way transaction. If I say like, What's uh, uh, 5 plus 10 is 15. You can instantly do the calculation and come to 15. But if I say my result is 15, you don't know if I did 5 plus 10, 16 minus 1, one 11 plus, plus, one plus 4. Plus one plus one. <laughs> That's sort of the premise of it. It's easy to go one way to check it and verify it and decrypt it. But it's almost impossible to go the other way if you're trying to break the code. Making because the it code so that itself ashes over itself over and over again. 
making it so that um, they, the people that are interested in you uh, or in your data know that a transaction happened, but they don't really know what was what was exactly happening there. Um, so you buy a, I don't know, you buy a sandwich and the people at the other end know a sandwich was bought and that's it. They don't really know anything about who was buying it. They, but what they do know is that it was a Bitcoin user uh, and, yeah. and they it's spent hard this to amount of Bitcoin. Because it could be anywhere in the world too. Like it's not like an IP address has some type of locality built into it where every, mm. the first part of every IP address kind of tells you what country it's from. Yeah. So that, that's how they block. Um, that's why you use a VPN to get around Netflix in Europe, like you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. It's just because they changed the first part of the IP address to associate with a country. But like with Bitcoin, it's just one address, but you can create as many offshoot addresses as you want. So the way to be secure about Bitcoin and to use it properly to secure yourself is to constantly use new addresses. So every time you receive or send money from an address, create a new address and send that money to your new address. Because then they don't know it went to you. They think that you sent that money to someone millions of miles away or to the coffee shop. They have no idea. Once you, once you break that, that link of consistency, there's no way to track it. Right. You have to do that on purpose. And to implement that purposefully means that you have to be conscious and aware of the security vulnerabilities and not just trust it blindly say, Oh, all Bitcoin's secure. So I'm secure. All Tor is secure. So I'm secure. All VPNs are secure. So I'm secure. It just right. doesn't work like that. You're better, but you're not like if, yeah, someone, it, wants, if someone wants in, they'll get in. Yeah, like, it's better. But with what? Bitcoin, it's a permanent record. So mm-hmm. even if they don't figure it out or have a reason to look into it till 20 years from now, unlike financial records and stuff that are only kept seven to 10 years, they have an infinite amount of time to backtrack and trace all this down. So that actually makes Bitcoin less secure in the long run. Because if you start running for government and you used a Bitcoin to buy a prostitute like 30 years ago, they could trace that back if they catch the prostitution ring and snag their wallets. Then they can look at all these transactions and then process one that comes to you buying from a coin exchange somewhere. Yeah, that's why you go to independent prostitutes. (laughs) (laughs) It's never gone. So you get this false sense of security using Bitcoin thinking that, oh, like because I'm using this and it's just garbledygook addresses and I did all the right things. If you don't change your wallets over manually with intent and encrypt your wallets and hide your transactions that got you to acquire them, you're... um, you're getting a layer of security, but it's only a, it's only an obfuscation. It's like an obstacle. Somebody's trying to run ahead of you. You're just throwing chairs in front of them. You're not actually stopping them. And that's what gets to that queen of hearts race from Alice in Wonderland. It's the implementation of the tools we have that's imperfect. So you can encrypt uh, WhatsApp messages end to end. No problem. But if somebody sends a change key request by hacking someone else's and you change the key and accept it, You've just accepted somebody to read your encrypted messages. So the vectors of attack aren't the encryption itself because that's pretty solid. It's in the way we program them in. It's the way we use them. And it's also in the means in which we rely on them. So by not mixing and matching them together, you're just, um, you're leaving openings for people to breach you. And that'll happen just from updates to software, even, uh, new security standards. Like Bluetooth is a huge security vulnerability, but it's so useful to so many people, they don't want to ban it. Mm -hmm. What do you do? 
you you leave it open and vulnerable and you just prosecute people who abuse their their knowledge and you know it, it's hard it's a hard nut to crack though because like layers of security are only so good as layers they're not good, they're not useful independently um mostly because of the implements that we have to uh, to use them mm-hmm. and that sort of takes us to uh pgp unless you had any other crypto well, no, I don't really have much else to say about crypto. Um, what is we could PG? probably do a full episode on crypto if people are interested. Just make a note in the comment. Yeah, there was one. There was one that Lex Friedman episode that was like four hours long. That really kind of uh, told me got really because I didn't really know what was going on in that. Really, it was a interesting oh, it was a fantastic episode though. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I okay. But I am really, I don't actually know what PGP is, so I am kind of wanting to get into this. So, um, uh, P- PGP works on kind of a similar basis as, uh, as every other encryption we use. It's the same encryption algorithm, but it's meant for like messages or data. You can do it for email or like images. Anything that's digital can be encrypted. Okay, so, so this is this what the one that stands for pretty good privacy? Yeah, that's all it means, and it's an open so, source type project. So the code's been reviewed and analyzed by I think MIT and developed it. So just a shout out to whoever developed it originally. Uh, Phil Zimmerman. It's one of those like just it's a it was like a PhD thesis and somebody just released it on GitHub and then everybody started using it because it was actually good when they when they looked into it. Yeah. So I think we could talk about encryption in general um, as a defense thing that you can do. So like there is encryption in Tor browser, there is encryption in in in, in um, VPNs and regular browsers too. That HTTPS. Yeah, there's encryption. is encryption, but one thing that you can do is encrypt um, yourself. To, you're using open source stuff um, like this. Uh, you know, you can encrypt every email that goes out or comes in. You can encrypt all the data flowing in and out of your computer it's it's something you can do you do have to watch a few you know youtube videos to get it to figure out how to set it up but you know uh a bit a day of um uh keyboard sweat and we'll get you uh started at least so it's tedious and time consuming though like even as even as a data analyst and security um pen tester like just as a hobbyist obviously but I wouldn't encrypt all my emails and stuff just for a time thing. Like some things I don't care if people see, you know, well, you can make encrypted folders and you can like make, you can like partition a part of your hard drive and encrypt that or make encrypted files. And just put, let's say, then just put that in the encrypted part of my computer. Yeah. But then the vulnerability is your login, right? And every time right. you turn your computer on, you're logging in and Microsoft sends typing statistics off to itself. So Microsoft's got that password, at least them guaranteed and if they get hacked then that's gone and all of your security efforts are wasted Mm -hmm. so like it really depends on how much you need to secure yourself but again if if you're one of the people like a journalist in a country that locks up journalists like russia you do need all of this and it's not just criminals that are using it or people like like me that just do it for the technology buzz you know because i get my kicks off of exploring technology it's its utility is is life threatening to some people if they misuse it. So it's important for them to know how to use it properly. So tell us about um, how pretty good privacy works as a uh, practical thing. 
it looks complicated and it, it it seems complicated, but it's really simple. Um, in essence, like without getting into the algorithm itself, what mm. it's doing is it's it's using a math formula to connect two people to share a certain key, which is each of their public keys. And then based on that key is like a, a seed for a random number generator. Let's say you wanted to write a code, but you, you wanted to test that the same number was going to work. You, you drop in the same seed to get the same number out every time just while you're testing it. And then you make the seed random after the fact so that everything works as you wanted it to. Mm-hmm. So this, this seed number that starts off with your private key, it creates a pair. So one pair of that, one half of the equation is a public key. And when the math formula from both parties that you're trying to connect to, um, when they put their keys together and agree, it decrypts the message that's contained in it. Just like really simply put. Mm -hmm. Um, The math is pretty confusing, but when you put math in a computer, you can just close it and never look at it again because math just always works, which is nice. Yeah, the computer knows the math. PGP, essentially, you'll you'll use a software or something, a little plugin or a Java jar file or whatever. There's a whole bunch of different ways to use PGP, but they're all implementing the same structure. And what it does is it takes the data, whether it's your picture, the text in your email, or anything you want, and it makes it takes that block and it wraps it in an encryption block. So everything within that block is encrypted. And once you decrypt it, you take out the headers and footers of the block, and then you decrypt the message inside and whether it's a picture, they'll see the picture. Whether it's a message, they'll see the message, etc. Because in essence, all digital information is just bits. So you can flip those bits as many times as you want. As long as you accurately reverse the process, it will always work, no, mm-hmm. no matter what, 100%. And if even one number is off, then the whole thing doesn't work. It doesn't even look similar. One tiny change, and that's the big part about PGP encryption and SHA-256 encryption, is that you get a block of just text and numbers that just look like garbledygook. Even if one number is off, it doesn't just change that number. The entire hash looks completely different because it hashes itself recursively over and over again during the process of of encrypting and decrypting. Mm -hmm. So basically, just to put it simply, that's like the broad overview. You have a key pair that you generate with this program, the PGP program, or whatever program's doing uh, your encryption. It gives you a public key, which you give other people so they can encrypt things that you can decrypt and nobody else can. And your private key that lets you decrypt things that other people send to you or that you encrypted yourself from your public key. So the public key you can show people and nobody can go through the math backwards and figure out how to decrypt it. But with your private key, every single thing that you have encrypted under your public key, they can see. So mm-hmm. that one, that one piece of information, that one wallet information is like a password that unlocks all of your encrypted stuff underneath that public key. And that's what's crucial is because again, with every layer of security comes a vulnerability inherent and intrinsic to the process and implementation of it. So a lot of people will tie the private keys to like a text password they can remember one, two, three, four or something like that. Brilliant. Well, th- yeah, then your whole encryption scheme is just down the drain because you chose a bad password or you use an email service that's got ads and stuff in it. Well, there's obviously access to a door for uh, a key logger and then it, somebody records the, the keys that you type. All they have to do is try all of the keys that you've typed recently and they know your password's in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's an algorithm that a computer can very easily run with brute force. 
just by doing it over and over and over again, every possible combination of every key you've pressed that day. If they, you know, suspect that you've unlocked your, your code that day. So like every, every part of this has a vulnerability, but to say it's vulnerable, I'm not going to use it is just ignorant because it's very useful. It's very hard to break encryption or to like sneak through somebody's password. But to think that it's perfectly impervious is also uh, hazardous because to think it's perfectly impervious, you're going to be careless and that will allow somebody to more easily um, get get in between you and your security measures. Right. Because like, let's say I encrypt some data and I put it on a removable drive. And every time I use the drive, I unplug any network connections my computer might have. And mm-hmm. so that keeps that from, you know, uh, that from, you know, anybody getting in while I'm using it. And then every time I want to use the internet, I have to unplug that drive. Having something not physically connected to something that's networked is a form of security. But then one day if I'm lazy and I just leave it in and someone's sitting there watching, you know, uh, then, you know, oh, look, there it is. Let's get it. They all they have to do is wait for you to screw up and it's right there. Um, there's also the potential risk that it'll store up a list of the files on your drive and then when mm-hmm. you reconnect, it'll send it. Yeah. Windows actually does that. If you disconnect Windows and don't let it update and you, you like try as you might, they will force an update on you eventually and that's how they do it. While mm-hmm. you're connected, they'll download stuff and upload stuff. And then if you disconnect, it'll pause itself without yeah. telling you. And then it'll force it at some point down the line. That's how viruses and Trojans get in. Like the mm-hmm. um, SolarWinds virus was done through an ex- uh, update exploit. Yeah. It was forced on a lot of systems. Some of them just did it automatically. Some did it manually. But even disconnecting stuff isn't impervious. It's just a good layer. It's a, mm-hmm. If somebody managed to get that one type of thing that you can't detect and notice on your system, that might be the thing that prevents it from, from working. <laughs> But no one measure is perfect, though, and that's what's really important is to think that you're safe on a VPN or think that you're safe on Tor or think that you're safe just because you're using encryption. How you use it is the vulnerability. It's not the encryption itself. So encryption, so this, this, this open PGP is a, um, it's an open source program. I'm looking at the, um, I'm looking at the website right now and it's nice and simple website. I like it. Um, but what's the advantage of doing something open source rather than relying on, say, you know, um, a uh, like McAfee a or something like that? Yeah, McAfee or Norton. These everything about those Low companies. <laughs> yeah. Oh, jeez. Well, the benefit is, first of all, it's lightweight. It's not going to bog your system down. It's not going to do anything you don't tell it to do explicitly. It's not mm-hmm. going to run in the background. There's not going to be pretty pictures and images like slowing your uh, your your system resources down like your graphics processor. Or it's not going to do any networking in the background. If something's open source, you can bet that a whole bunch of nerds have sat there and said, like, you don't need that network connection running in the background. And they'll just wipe it out, fork it off, and say, here, here's a better version of PGP without the network access. Right. Like somebody will just fix it. And then they'll say what they fixed, how they fixed it, where the line of code is. They'll quote it. They'll comment it. Whereas in a company, they want to keep it hidden in a black box because that's their product, right? They don't want to show people their product because then people could copy and paste and 
issue well, it that, for free. And, and a lot of what you see when you like something like a antivirus, um, which I believe is also part of this, you know, um, security yeah. uh, thing is that a lot of it's just show, you know, there's, there's a show for the antivirus. Look, you're using our product. Isn't that great? And they have all these little animations going while you, it searches your computer. But like my antivirus, all it does is shows you a list of what it's scanned in, you know, text and that's it. Um, I don't even think it has a loading bar <laughs> and there's all like there's graphics and there's stuff that, you know, it's all there and all these features that it tells you it has that you're never going to use. Um, and then it, you know, all, every time you scan you, it scans you, it's like, look, we found nothing. And also, uh, BT dubs send us money. It's like what that there's a script running in the background to ask you for money every time it does something. And that's a script that you don't need. It doesn't need to be like, I want my antivirus to, you know, just check. And I don't want it to bug me unless it finds something. I don't want it to tell me like, look how great of a good job I'm doing. And like, when you get your computer, like every time you get your computer, you're, or I, um, you load up an operating system, especially like windows or Mac OS or something or whatever Mac has now you have to like, got it. Like I went into the, my computer and I gutted this thing. I must've deleted like, 40, 50 programs just right off the bat. And I would advise sites. everyone to do that because those programs only exist to collect data from people. That's yeah. all they do. And you bought it. Why would you be feeding some company money to use your electricity and your hardware the way they want you to? Right. Because you are paying every, every algorithm takes a bit of processing power and every out and processing power is electricity and electricity is your power bill. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, one but of the it's things... also, it's diminishing the value of the product that you bought. If you bought something because it operates at a certain speed and has a certain amount of RAM, if you open it up and four gigabytes of that RAM, like half of your eight gigabytes is used up by something you don't want, mm-hmm. you're only getting a computer that's half as fast with four gigabytes of RAM, not eight that you paid for. Because it's used up by something that you're not wanting or using. So, like... There are so many ways, though, that companies monetize compute power. And a lot of them, like even through websites, you can mine cryptocurrency just from visitors traffic on a website. Like you can use a computer system resources with every type of application and thing that's installed on your computer. But those are also vectors of attack. If I'm if I'm trying to break into a computer system that's using PGP and a VPN and Tor and absolutely everything to the nines, but they've got like HP smart software, like just some customer friendly type of bright blue and white. Ooh, let's talk about printers and update drivers and stuff. Yes. If you have just needlessly bloated software running on your computer, it is so easy for an attacker to say, well, tons of people have this software and it's vulnerable. I'll just crack that. And that's a gateway right into your secure system. One second. I 